Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the world who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change and other environmental issues. So we focus on the personal side of these things, our, our inner lives, which is important. And today we are very lucky and honored to have a guest with us. Hello. Good to see you. I'm Renee Lertzman. And Renee is a old-time colleague and, and a friend of ours uh, who is yet another one of these innovators in this whole area of climate and emotions. And so we're looking forward to talk with Renee, who's coming in from the Bay Area. Um, and Pauli, do you want to get us started? Yes, very good to see you, Renee. Uh, again, we have met live once in, in Finland. A major Finnish company invited you to give a keynote, keynote speech, and I had already been reading many of your influential writings, which really helped, helped me with these nuanced dynamics of environmental attitudes and emotions and behavior. And you are involved in a lot of, lot of things, but perhaps we could start from the journey itself. How, how, how was, it, was it for you? Would you like to share something about how did you be, become uh, so interested about these complex dynamics of environmental issues? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, so basically, first off, thanks for having me. Um, I know both of you and love both of you. So this is I'm really excited about our conversation. Um, I started this journey. I located when I was quite young, uh, when I was a teenager. And uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was exposed here and there to some information about what was going on with the environment. Um, but it wasn't until I went to college and I was planning to be a psychologist. You know, that was always very clear because I myself had benefited from psychotherapy when I was in high school, when I was around 15 and 16. And I knew I was new, you know, I was going to be a psychologist. So I went to, to university. And uh, while I was in training uh, as a psych major, I took a variety of classes. And one of them happened to be an environmental studies 101 kind of introductory course. And as I tell this story in a variety of places, uh, including the TED Talk I ended up giving, that experience really derailed me. It, it was so unexpected how the impact it had on me psychologically, emotionally, you know, existentially. And at the time, it was the late 1980s. There wasn't really a lot of discussion about uh, what all of this means for us. 
And so I had a very, it was a very solitary journey in that uh, I was, you know, in therapy and all of that, but, but no one at the time was really talking about what it means to process ecological crises, including climate change. So at the time, it wasn't specific to climate change for me. It was the whole confluence of the the headline was humans have, you know, irreparably altered and damaged our beautiful, amazing planet. So that was the big takeaway from the class. And, and that's a lot to process. <laughs> and then it was like, well, what do I do with this? Yeah. You know, so you know, I, that kind of started everything off for me. Yeah. So listeners, you know, that's the thing and students, listeners, it's, it is exactly what happens. And it's, people are a little more aware today. I, 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 I know teachers and students are aware, but it really, it is. Yes. The, the planet is vocally changed. We have 30 years or else we're doomed. The bell rings and then we carry our books to, to the next class, you know, so it's this real, this kind of odd feeling we're supposed to ha- carry this and walk around. So that leads to the whole, I mean, I think Renee, one thing that you're known for at that, that, at that time anyway, was just realizing, Hey, there's a whole school of thought about this. Like these psychoanalytic folks have thought about all this and the idea of, of splitting and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of, can we talk about that a little bit and how you found that helpful and led to your early, like your, your early uh, research in your book and things? Yeah, definitely. So I am and was and am in love with psychoanalytic clinical studies, research and perspectives. And by that, I mean, work that's written by people who work with people in clinical settings um, around, you know, healing and trauma and anxiety and all of that. And so I've been immersed in that world for a long time. But for me, when I encounter that work specifically around how do we as humans uh, process really uh, difficult, challenging information, how do we work through guilt? You know, how do we work through shame? How do we work through uh, conflict? you know, where we're pulled in different directions. Um, it's been very hard for me to encounter that work and not immediately think about our ecological and climate crisis and connect the dots. Even if a lot of that work isn't speaking about that explicitly, and I'm talking about going back to whether it's Freud or whether it's Melanie Klein or whether it's Beyond or whether it's, you know, a whole variety of very thoughtful deep thinkers and practitioners, they're not necessarily writing about the ecological crisis or climate change. But my experience is it's a rich treasure trove of perspectives, tools, and insights. And so I've been basically since that time in the late 80s, really connecting those dots and seeing how do we apply this in a way that isn't simple, simple, like, you know, it's not apples to apples. It's like, well, how do we how do we take this and make this meaningful and useful for the human condition right now as we enter into this, you know, Anthropocene moment? And to me, the concept of even where we are right now as a human species and that we are actually having to come to terms with what we've done is itself an unprecedented kind of existential situation 
that I think we need all hands on deck as far as the human sciences and, you know, cultural studies and, you know, we, we need all of it. But I really feel like at the heart of it is the psychological. And that has been missing for so many years uh, for reasons that I think both are confounding to me and make total sense. Because if we take what we know about humans and how we have this capacity to sort of disavow or kind of split off, then yeah, we avoid talking about emotion and feeling and the messier stuff because it's hard. Uh, but now we're at a moment where it's really clearly with this conversation, your work, you know, we're in a very different place now. Yeah. So that's kind of my, my fundamental orientation. And then, you know, that led to my spending a net many years doing research to try to deepen this perspective and really see uh, how to, how I could make sense of the, what we think of as apathy, you know, what we, we, I'm using we in quotes, like people working in the environmental and climate space um, have been in the grip of a lot of, I think, uh, myths about and assumptions about humans that are frankly not grounded in psychology at all. Mm. So in a way, what I'm trying to do is an intervention and to say, you know what, like we need to stop saying things like people are apathetic. We need to stop saying, oh, how do I get other people to care about these issues? That's it's actually completely backwards, completely. And yet it's really taken hold, you know, for a lot of people like, oh, I got to make you care about this. Well, that's just, that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, warm, warm thanks for dwelling on that, that, that Rene. In a recent interview, you referred also to the, the strange dissociation, you noticed in the society at the same time when you heard these very worrisome facts about the ecological crisis in, in classrooms. And uh, that's very deep dissociation, I think, is one of the reasons why the psychoanalytic and psychodynamic tradition was so important in the early 2000s, for example, uh, in providing more understanding about the deeper dynamics. Uh, I think that any you know, just simple coping theory is unable to explain that because the discrepancies are so strong. And one of the things that I was drawn to in Thomas's early work was also an effort to integrate coping theory and defense theory, for example. So there's some influences from psychodynamic dynamic thought also. And Rene, you were part of this very influential book called Engaging with Climate Change, edited by Sally Weintraub, which provided a lot of insights from the psychodynamic and analytic traditions and for those listeners who may have heard very critical things about psychoanalytic tradition, I want to mention that in her research, Rene is very careful in that application and utilizes a very critical research method there. So there's there's a lot, lot there, but. Uh, you already hinted that then you did years of also empirical research and that might be a logical uh, part to go go from here and it, it actually links with Thomas's personal history also and the, and the Great Lakes also related to this myth of apathy. So uh, would you like to speak a bit more about that? Sure. Um, so uh, I ended up going on to do various um, graduate programs. Um, I first focused on environmental communication, did a master's in 
communication studies and then went on to um, really want to just talk with people and listen and work, you know, really conduct qualitative research um, in a community. And so I ended up, it's a long story, but I ended up, my research was sponsored by an organization based in the Great Lakes, um, the Weggy Foundation. And uh, they generously, well, it was actually a specific individual, Jonathan Weggy, who sponsored my research with the one requirement that it relate to the Great Lakes in some way. And so I ended up uh, becoming a fellow with an organization in Madison, Wisconsin, and was connected with a community in the region. And, and I ended up spending time in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And for me at the time, that was like the equivalent of going to, you know, sub-Sahara Africa or something, <laughs> because, you know, I, I'm from California and like lived in the East Coast, the West Coast, but being in the Midwest was really new and different for me. And um, I absolutely loved every minute of it. Uh, I embedded myself in this community in Green Bay that welcomed me in. And I spent time listening and talking with people who I had a market research firm who very generously, it's kind of amazing to think about it now, sent out a survey to their database of thousands of people in the, in the region. And I designed the survey very, very carefully to um, show me who, from an environmentalist perspective, would appear to be not engaged and, and quote apathetic. Who would be normally written off by an environmental organization? You know, like, oh, they don't read anything about this. They don't watch anything about this. They don't talk about this with their friends and family. And I decided to hone in and do in-depth interviews and conversations with a subset of those people who I would have been like, well, why would I talk to them? because they're not engaged. So it was it was pretty edgy and scary for me to do that. And I designed these interviews very inspired by psychodynamic and psychoanalytic research. And all that means is that there's a lot of listening, is there's a lot of presence. Um, I'm asking a lot of questions and I'm not going with, I'm not using a script. So this was a very different way of conducting social science research. You know, I have a PhD in social science from Cardiff University. You know, it's pretty traditional. Um, but I went and did this methodology that's referred to as psychosocial research. And I found in the, the experience just fundamentally changed me. You know, I, I came out in the middle of doing the research in Green Bay. I came up with this concept of the myth of apathy. And then I pitched writing a piece about that to a magazine and it, it wrote it quickly. It ran and that piece led to maybe 10 speaking engagements around the world because it, it just struck a chord and the argument, which you can still find online, it's, it was published by the ecologist. It's still out there 2008, where I argue that we're, you know, it's really not that people are apathetic. There is so much else going on. But we have to listen. We have to show up differently. We have to show up with compassion, with empathy, and to really appreciate like 
Like some of these people I interviewed knew more about what's going on with the ecology of the Great Lakes, the water quality, the air quality, than most people. Think about that. The people I interviewed knew more about it than most people and yet would have been written off and had been written off by the environmental community. So, you know, Renee, I'm thinking about this growing up in Buffalo myself, Buffalo, New York, and on the shores of the Great Lakes, Lake, Lake, Erie, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and just the reality, even myself growing up in the 70s, you know, with the lakes being part of the culture. My parents grew up swimming in lakes. Um, by the time I was a child, the lakes, you know, Lake Erie was, was seen as, you know, poisoned and polluted. Uh, and then we have the weather that comes off the lakes with the snow and the lake affects snow. So it's a big part of people's reality. Um, and so you were tapping into that that whole thing. This is before all the really obvious polarization about climate change, too, and just people's basic thinking about this. So it's really nice to go back in time a little bit to see what this was like. And you had this whole myth of apathy for listeners. That means it's a myth. People, It's not that people don't care as Renee was saying, they know, they know a lot. It's just that they might either feel powerless about an issue or it's a taboo topic for their community, or they don't have a, a way to plug in. And so for their own, you know, mental health, they, they package this care away, you know, they put it away because they can't do anything about it. Um, and I think you, you revealed that. And then you talked about these three A's, you know, and I see, I think you do that even now with your work in corporations, you have people talk about their, what they're anxious about and their ambivalence, their different kinds of feelings, and then what they aspire to, which I really think is inspiring. Uh, do you want to talk about the, the three A's and how that, that worked out there? Yeah, sure. So uh, that was a very uh, clear, um, helpful reframe of what you just offered. So thank you. That's exactly what the myth of apathy is about, um, which is that we go around making assumptions and reading into people's behavior and making interpretations. And we project a lack of care or concern, which is, uh, I, I, have, I find deeply problematic and, and inaccurate. Um, it puts it back on us. Uh, it's on us to try to tune in and understand what's actually going on. So uh, the three A's is a shorthand uh, that I came out of that research with that I designed, it took a long time to get to the three A's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I'm very proud because uh, to be honest, uh, what happened was after my research, I, I got a position at Portland State University and I was teaching a class on the psychology of climate change, believe it or not, in uh, 2010. It was the first class offered on this topic and I was experimenting and I had my students keep a journal and the journal was, you know, keep track of when you see climate change um, in your life. You know, it could be a poster, it could be a news article, it could be a conversation and just kind of pay attention. And so I had all these journals. I was sitting in my uh, place in Portland looking through these journals. And one of my students had written this little story where she said, I just saw a book called, you know, 50, whatever it was, 50 places to see before they disappear. Mm -hmm. And she said, my initial reaction was, wow, you know, like, what is this world coming to that we even have a book about places that are disappearing? And then she said, my next thought was, I, I better go out and see these amazing places before they're gone. 
And then she said, I, then I realized if I did that, I would be contributing to the very problem, right? I'd be part of the problem. And so I had this, this almost like a flash of insight where I realized like that captures it all in one kind of simple cycle. So anxiety, I'm feeling deeply anxious about what's happening with the world ambivalence. I, I want to go out and continue my life as a, as a person. Like I want to do these things that give me a lot of pleasure, you know, flying and traveling and whatever that might be, um, that we now know, you know, are problematic, but I want to. So that's the concept of ambivalence is where we are literally in conf conflict with, within ourselves. And then aspiration is, but I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. And so I, I came up with the shorthand of the three A's as a, as a way to kind of help us tune in to it's never just one thing. It's never just anxiety. It's never just mm -hmm. overwhelm. It's, you know, it's, it's really very, it's co complex. And I designed the three A's very specifically to use with my organizational clients. So I do, I do not work privately with people. I work with organizations, companies, nonprofits, uh, government, foundation. I, I kind of work across any sector. But what matters is I partner with people who are in those organizations who are trying to make, make some change happen. And the way I use the three A's is actually more to help them and us be attuned to what's happening with the people we're wanting to engage and bring along with us. And that for a lot of people is a huge revelation, mm. you know, to really step into the shoes of others to think, well, what might be anxiety producing about this? Where might there be ambivalence? Uh, and where is the aspiration? Um, and that work eventually led to uh, my creating a, a really cool resource that you you know you can find online called Project Inside Out. And Project Inside Out, uh, the website is uh, you find it at projectinsideout.net. And it was it was started with a grant from the KR Foundation, uh, who basically asked me to come up with sort of a fantasy project. And mm. I thought, well, what if I take some of this work and package it up a little bit more so that it can be used by people working on change? Mm. Mm. And we're going to put the, the link to Project Inside Out in our show notes, uh, projectinsideout.net and some of the other, that early writing piece that Renee talked about, the myth of apathy, which is still a kind of a classic uh, reference for, you know, students and thinkers in this area. Yeah, and I'm reminded of Janet Lewis, our recent guest who talked about climate dialectics, this idea of we have these com these these competing ideas and we have to find some sort of um, some sort of pathway through. Mm -hmm. So that's I think Renee was illustrating the whole dialectical piece there. I totally identify with that young person and the whole I mean, I call it extinction tourism. It's like if before this world goes, you know, uh, mm. I'm going to fear mm. it's a FOMO, eco FOMO, which we've talked about, you know, fear of missing out, which is goes in a lot of directions, missing out on the world or missing out on you know, doing enough. Um, so I totally identify with that as it, in my 20s, I felt very similar as an outdoor guide and river rafting guide. Mm. Um, 
But Panu, what are you what are you thinking about over there? Yeah, I think this is very very rich and shows the complexities of the affective dimensions around ecological issues, which after all are socio ecological issues these days, and that's one reason why I think the psychosocial research tradition is so important. There can be conflicting emotions and desires, like the desire to see fantastic places and a sort of anticipation of guilt if one would would do do so. And this book by René, Environmental Melancholia, uh, features discussion of many emotional tones, which are not so often discussed yet. I did some explorations of that in a Finnish book and in this English article called Toward a Taxonomy of Climate Emotions and some of those tones like disappointment, feeling bit betrayed, but also an urge to do something good. These all, all have links to René's research all, also and reparation is one big part of that, that René's book and we actually explored that in a Finnish national survey about climate emotions asking about the Finnish emotion term hyvittämisen halu which might be translated as desire to make amends. Mm. The mm-hmm. sociologist was, was a bit surprised that I proposed that we add that there, but they accepted it. And o- over 30% of the respondents uh, did uh, say that they have felt this. Of course, it's their self-reflection. Uh, re- uh, we can't know all the dynamics, but I still think it's significant. And uh, René, you saw lots of these desire for reparation dy- dynamics. Would you like to speak b- a bit about that and perhaps open up the concept of reparation for the listeners? Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you introduced that concept because it's central to really all of this. For me, the guiding question is always, what are the conditions that enable and cultivate our capacity to want to make amends, to want to heal, to want to make something better. And uh, I, my inspiration for this is from the Jewish teaching that's called Tikkun Olam, which mm-hmm. is translated as, you know, to repair the world. And I was raised with this, you know, um, orientation. You know, it's just, it's very much in the Jewish tradition to want to make better but what i where where i'm at is is i'm really wanting to know how do we foster the conditions collectively um not you know at an individual level per se but i'm way more interested in the collective social context so what are the conditions that help wake that up wake up that part of ourselves because i i believe strongly that it's in there uh, and it's not just my belief it's like now now we've got a lot of research, you know, thankfully we have a lot of research, um, whether it's, you know, what, whatever we want to call it, you know, uh, whether it's the science of empathy or whether it's the altruism or, mm-hmm. you know, incredible work, uh, the work on future being what it means to be a good ancestor, you know, and all of this, there's just, there's just a ton of uh, evidence that supports that humans have this capacity deep down. But, but there are very specific conditions that we need. And that's where I think we should be focusing all of our attention right now. Mm. Like literally, I think that I think we're, we're spending way too much time talking about pushing solutions on people mm. like cheerleaders 
and we're or we're shouting. So we're either educating, cheerleading, or writing. You know, R I G H T. We're not really guiding. We're not really like thinking about what do you need. What do you need that will enable you to feel safe enough, to feel contained enough, to feel like you can go there and and really want to make things better? And instead, we tend to focus on the symptoms, which is, oh, overwhelm, you know, paralysis and uh, despair. And, you know, I think all of this is sort of it's there, but really um, we know uh, a lot about those conditions for repair. And that has to do with, you know, the things I think we all know you, the three of us are familiar with, which, you know, people need to feel like they matter. They need to feel like their actions are going to have some sort of impact. We know we need to feel like we have agency. We need to feel like we can have a full life, frankly, you know, like that it's to be involved with climate doesn't mean we're giving up on, you know, we're not throwing our life away in terms of uh, a quality of life, you know. And so it's finding that balance of of what these factors are and acknowledging that they're going to be unique for each person. You know, there's there's not a formula, but you know, what I would invite people listening to reflect on is what are the conditions that you need to support you in your ability to ha- uh, to to be able to make repair um, in a healthy, grounded way. And to consider what are the conditions that others need. And coming from that place is a very different place than I'm going to try to convince you why this is an important issue and why you should take action on it. It's a very, very different energy. It's a different orientation entirely. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, Yeah, so listeners, that's something just for us to take a breath and to take in. We don't have to answer it today, but again, it's often just asking the right question is the thing. And so these, as the old poets say, you know, these are questions to be lived, you know, to lived out. So what do you need to support you to have an impact, to have a full life? What do you need? And then, and then also that other question, now what do others need? So it does, does kind of put us into other people's shoes. Pano and I just was recording an episode for the future on families and couples and all of the different, you know, we have to do that in our own families. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of our parents or in our children or in our, into our children or our brothers or sisters or our significant others. Renee, have you done any, uh, well, we have a a few minutes left, so we can go in a few directions here, but I was going to ask you about couples and families, but Maybe uh, maybe this dynamic also comes out in your work with or you know companies and organizations. I don't know. Maybe how would you wanna how would you wanna right. go, Renee, right now? Well, I work only with organizations. I, I do not work with individuals, couples, or families. So that's that's not my mm-hmm. uh, orientation. I, I partner with amazing clinicians for whom that is the focus, and that's very rich because you know we all we all have our, our relationships we're navigating, you know, Mm -hmm. our friends, family, coworkers, um, and everyone's kind of in a different place in their journey. And I think there's not enough attention to really looking at how to navigate that skillfully because, you know, a lot of times people in a, within a family system, or let's just say in a team, Mm -hmm. let's say a team and an organization are in a very, very different place you know, where someone is, is maybe having a hard time going there and, and feeling very resistant and very even hostile. 
Um, and then there, you've got other people who are, who are like, well, wait a minute, this is feeling really the most urgent thing in my life. And I'm, I don't know how to deal with this. This is very frustrating. And so a lot of what I do that's, that I have found to be extremely impactful is frankly, I work with these teams and leaders to create a culture, a team culture, organizational culture where it's okay, you know, to talk about these things and it's okay to, to be in a different place that, that it's not like trying to get everyone to, you know, feel the same way about something, but really celebrate the diversity of perspective. The fact that people coming to this from very different places is important. We need that. We need to be able to learn and, and listen to, okay, like for you, this is maybe not the biggest priority. Tell, I want to learn more. That's hard mm-hmm. for me, but I want to learn more about that because frankly, we all need to figure out how to come together around these issues and move into a productive way of having dialogue and interaction. Mm. What Rene has shared here has both the individual and collective dimension. So I think that's a very important joining together of these two. And in a way, it leads organizational cultures and teams towards more shared vulnerability, kind of intervulnerability. But then people can very quickly also get the feeling that this actually makes them stronger. Uh, and that's one of the sort of people may think of it as a paradoxical thing, but that, that can happen if there is enough containment and leadership and companionship. And this would be a very rich topic to discuss even even more, but um, we probably have to start wrapping, wrapping things up for this episode. And it would be totally marvelous if we could have you as a guest sometime again, 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 Rene. And one of the emotions around these issues is gratitude also. And that's part of my affective landscape. I'm mm. very gratitude for the work that different people like you two are doing around these issues. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you. And I feel grateful as well for you all and for holding space for these conversations. It's really, really important and um, part of the work of repair is having these these um, interactions where we can talk about these topics. And uh, so I'm very, very appreciative of both of you as well. And I, I thank you for inviting me to be, be with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is, um, there's no way, there's no way to do this work, but to do it. And so even this podcast, we just create these spaces to, uh, talk about things, um, you know, and I really like what you're talking about, Renee. I mean, um, so all of us live in organizations, you know, we work in different places so the listeners can think about, you know, I mean, I feel for people because of course we do have the freedom to get into this deeply and really be honest and transparent and share. And it's so rare and even in the corporate world in general to share any, anything really personal because it's so political at, at the different levels. But so think about creating a culture, we can talk about these things. And I think the subtext there, Renee, um, is even if we don't feel the same things or even if we disagree, right? Yeah, so, exactly. It's so yeah. important. So maybe yeah. we can maybe we can close on that note with some some anecdote or some idea, Renee, from you or advice for us, because I think that that's that's kind of where people maybe will stop because, well, I don't really want to mm-hmm. open up this thing or I'm afraid people are I know 
my colleague is going to disagree. We know people. We know what they're going to say. And so how, how has it worked? Have you seen any good stories or just a takeaway about how it works when even when people disagree, they, they move through that, that little doorway? Absolutely. So um, it's a much bigger conversation, but what I will just say is actually simple, which is it's really about being present and, uh, and coming from a place of curiosity and listening to others. So, you know, if there's one thing people can do coming out of this, it's one, you know, practicing self-awareness of your own activation, triggers, emotions, but doing whatever you can to practice being truly present to others especially and including when there's a different perspective. Um, I think that's where the rubber meets the road in this work. And it's where I see a a lot of people sort of struggle. Um, So it's, it's really that, I mean, it's that straightforward. It's like listening and asking evocative questions. You know, there's a short video, by the way, that I helped produce with the Alliance for Climate Education. Um, And it's, it's nicknamed the secret to talking about climate change, but, it's got a lot of wisdom in there. And really what it's about is not talking about climate change. It's about asking questions. It's about asking people really uh, open-ended questions and then giving your presence and listening to what, what comes from that. That's the most powerful and impactful thing we could do right now. That's well said. Um, so we'll, put a, we'll find that and put a link to that. The, the, it's a great title there, but it is about, yeah, I think human, human connection ultimately. Uh, yeah, this is really great. Uh, Renee, thanks so much. People will have a doorway now into, into your, the variety of all your contributions. And so we'll spread that word around and we're going to wrap it up. I'll get into my, well, Renee and I are both, I think on Pacific time. So we're getting into our days here, our weekdays. Um, Renee, what, what's your, what's your life like today? Oh gosh. Well, I'm heading over to Google (laughs) where I've been working for a few years. Um, so yeah, I work very closely with a team over there, love them. And, uh, that's my day. So that's great. Uh, yeah, like, like some of the other, uh, climate workers we've talked about therapists, they'll go into their sessions and you're going into your, Mm -hmm. your work. So that's great. Um, that's great. (laughs) That's my version of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I'll go into my version of that, which will will also include seeing clients and, and writing Mm -hmm. and various things. Uh, Panu, what's, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. what's left for you this evening, Panu? Well, uh, it's the end of the thinking part of the day and moving towards spending time with the boys and once more warm mm-hmm. thanks Renee for finding the time to join us I'm really looking forward to future the, the, this discussions and dear listeners you can find us at climatechangeandhappiness.com you can also find us on pay, pay, Patreon we appreciate any, any support there's a lot of wisdom to be drawn from this uh, Renee's input here so uh, do take time with it and do take care thank you for listening Yes, listeners, uh, Renee and Panu, all take care. Thank you. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.